Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Adrian. And I'm Ben. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Ben. (laughs) Spectology is a science fiction book club podcast where every month we read a book, and we have two main episodes, a pre-read with no spoilers, where we talk about the context of the book, kind of some stuff to think about before you read, and a post-read where we talk about the uh, the book with full spoilers and get really into it, and then some bonus episodes about other stuff. Could be anything. Could be an interview. Who knows? <laughs> and we'd like to have guests. Yes, we do. So our book this month is The Ghost Network by Katie DiSabato, and it was selected by our guest Ben who is sort of like an internet friend of mine through the Spectology Twitter account, I believe is how we met. And uh, yeah. I really like the games that you write, so I'll let you talk a little bit more about that. But like, Ben, you should talk about yourself a little bit here. Uh, hi, I'm Ben. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, and yeah, I am like a Twitter person. I write a bunch of tabletop games that are particularly like focused on expanding the way that players can uh, interact with narrative, like um, helping like character players get a, like a feel for not just manipulating like the game world, like in like Dungeons and Dragons, they're like, oh, I'm going to roll dice to do a spell. <laughs> but like, I try to write games that are like about giving players the opportunity to like, not just manipulate the world of the game, but to manipulate the narrative and to work at multiple different levels of play. I also do a lot of, like, writing. I have a fantasy novel that's upcoming. Not, like, a web serial, so you can read it online for free if you want. And um, do some poetry and other stuff. Basically, if you can write it, I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And where can folks find you online? Like, where can they find some of this stuff? I mean, we'll link it, too, of course, but... (laughs) Yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Roswell Writes. That's probably uh, the best way to get all of my different kinds of things mm-hmm. but if you're specifically looking for either my writing or my games you can find that on roswellians.itch.io a lot of it's free if you want to like take a look some of it's paid but none of it's particularly expensive mm-hmm. do you have a, a kind of a, a game of yours that you like to send people to if they haven't tried one before yeah um so uh my game i have wrote i wrote a game called together we write private cathedrals which is um a sort of writing correspondence game where you write letters between where people write letters. Oh, that's so cool. That's such a great idea. (laughs) Specifically, it's about um, playing out queer history. And so it involves a layer of like you get to roll a dice and find out how censored your letters need to be. Oh my God, that's such a cool idea. (laughs) (laughs) And like, um, and then you, you, there's like cards that tell you like what kind of like, very general, give you very general writing prompts. And the idea is that, like, sort of over the course of the game, you get to make, like, a historic record. Like, letters that will be found years later from these, between these two people. I want to play this right now. Yeah. I'm so into that idea. That is an amazing <laughs> idea. So, like, uh, Adrian is the one who met Ben before. I, I have, this is my first time meeting Ben. And this is, I'm, like, so, I've, like, not heard about these <laughs> games before. Like, I mean, I knew that Ben made games, but... Like, this is so cool. Yeah. I, so I, I own this game and I've read it and I, like, definitely want to play it. It, it. So I actually, I have a friend whose husband 
Actually, I don't know if they're married. But anyway, um, his partner, at least, is uh, does specifically, like, um, he's a historian, and his historical work is specifically on these sorts of letters in the Civil War in particular. Mm-hmm. And it's just the most fascinating thing to me. So when I saw that you had a whole game about it and the way that you kind of work in this, like, how censored does it need to be and how, like, you know, what are they talking about kind of, like, into this, like, mechanical sense, I was very excited, yeah. Ben. Yeah, like, I I wrote it in part because I was getting really frustrated with, like, the idea that, like, people talking about, like, queer censorship as being, like, something that, like, oh, like, it it forces people to, like, to, like, in, like, it forces people into the closet and, like, it's all about, like, hiding yourself. And I'm like, no, it's actually the opposite. It's about how much can you express yourself with these limitations. Mm -hmm. And... Like, it's not about it's not about how much can you hide. It's about how much can you share. Right. And I really like the idea, too. I mean, there's this idea in what, you know, he's talked to me about. And also, I think in your game where like there's also an element of just like historians being very oblivious to all the stuff that is like right there in the text that like it's never the assumption that like oh yeah this is like you know two lovers who are writing to each other uh there's always this kind of like heterosexual assumption in like the way these letters are like you know discussed and read after the fact yeah and that's this other interesting element of like (laughs) censorship that goes through the whole thing yeah i think it's, it's also about like um like wanting to give like to treat history with like a sense of compassion for me because um and not like and to like understand that people's previous understandings were not necessarily what we understand now and that we don't have to like force our understanding on them one thing that happens kind of frustratingly as a transgender man which i am that a lot of um people like we don't know how people in the past identified but a lot of like historians or modern day uh people write off the possibility that there's even a possibility that historical people who dressed as men could be trans because, mm-hmm. oh, it's just girl power, right? Like, their uh, worlds, like, didn't want women to be in power, so they dressed as men to have power, like. Right. And I'm like, maybe they dressed as men to fight in the Civil War, but then if they lived as a man for 50 years after that, never told anybody, didn't want their body examined. Right. Like, Maybe there's a reason beyond that, beyond just like not wanting to live as a woman. Right, right. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's things going beyond power structures here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's I, so cool. I love that. I think too. This is you know talking about this. I think our audience will understand why like you and this book like this sort of like this perfect kind of like <laughs> combination for what we're about to yeah. read as well. Um, yeah. So uh, I have not read this book yet. Um, have any of you guys? Uh, read this book before? Um, yeah, I read most, but not all of it, like a year and a half ago. Sweet. So that's that's a leading question, and the reason I ask is because uh, should we have any content warnings for people? Oh, good question. Um. All right. I read most of the re- a year and a half ago, and read the first half again, like this week. Um. So I can't, I'm not quite sure if I can remember everything that happens in the last book. Um, I mean, I think that you should, uh, like, be aware there's some, like, frank discussions of whether characters are suicidal or not, but there's mm-hmm. nothing explicit. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there's also, um, in the first couple of pages, a death by drowning. Right. Um, and some alcohol and substance abuse discussions, but mm-hmm. not particularly explicit. 
Cool. Cool. Good. All right. Thanks. Sounds good. That's good stuff. Yeah. And we always tell people sort of for this pre-read, like we do our best, but often we haven't read the whole book. So also yeah. go right. in knowing right. that like we don't know everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were doing our best here. Um, cool. So I think maybe we should talk about the book a little bit itself. Yeah, uh, some sort of some sort of information, book information. Yeah, like some, like some, like some info kind of, about the novel, novel novel kind info. Of, <laughs> I don't know book who facts? could be a factotum for this book. <laughs> um, so I like how we've gone past saying book facts to referencing book facts. What was that? What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> it's very postmodern and experimental narratively of us. I also like how I leaned into my mic. To try to catch what you just said, as if that would help. <laughs> that's like that's like when a little kid wants to tell you a secret, and so they whisper yeah. into your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where secrets go. Um, yep. So the novel is called Go- "The Ghost Network." It was published in 2015 by, um, I think, Melville Press. Uh, yeah. The author is Katie DeSabato, which I hope I am saying that name right. That's you uh- know. I wouldn't know to correct you. Right. That's what it looks like. So that's what I'm going with. Um, She's an L.A. author. Like she lives in L.A. and writes there. Oh, that rules. She. Yeah. Matt. Matt is Mm -hmm. an L.A. guy. So Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is her first novel, but she's written a lot of like kind of like criticism and commentary and short fiction and like all that kind of stuff um, sort of all over the Internet. Like I saw like the toast and, you know, the millions, like all these kind of like Internet, you know, yeah. Uh, magazines. Sorry, I'm sick if like listeners cannot tell. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah. at, like 80% right now. Um, sick, nasty. <laughs> yeah. You know, it got really cold no, when like I was outside all day. Uh, so it's about 300 pages long, I believe. So it's like not a super long novel. Um, what would you say the genre is, Ben? Because I, I, I put question marks down in my <laughs> notes for this. <laughs> um. I think it's a it's a mystery, I think. I mean, like it's like a it's a mystery, but it's also um a piece of pseudo nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Like I think those are the two big things. Like it's it's the it's a like it's a story of a disappearance and the tracking of disappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like sort of again told in the first couple of pages as you figure out like what the nonfiction book is about. And the other big thing is that it's like it's written in the form of a nonfiction book. It has footnotes it has sort of like factual whole sections that are about telling you facts that may or may not be real <laughs> right. um and and like sort of folding in these like long very informative sections into like this larger story of the mystery so mm-hmm. it's also this like a piece of cultural cri- criticism but fiction <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is so extremely my jam. I'm so excited yeah. that there's you also I know <laughs> I haven't gotten too deep into it. I know there are some sort of like speculative elements in the form of like secret societies and like sort of like underground yeah. like it's unclear yeah, if it's, it's like underground fan clubs or underground cults or like, you know, <laughs> the Illuminati or like what's going on. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I've read like the yeah, first chapter. That's it. So it's, far. it's also a little bit like it's also a little bit Dan Brownie. Like, ah. um, like it's absolutely not Dan Brownie in like the way it reads or what it's about, mm-hmm. but it, it has a little bit of that, like, you need to solve these puzzles. Right, right. 
Um, I guess we can say it's a little bit, you know, umbeto echoey in that, you know, like yeah. the nice version of that. It's a little bit, it's a little <laughs> bit Foucault's pendulum there. <laughs> right. Like, um, I mean, I, I love down Brown cause I love trash, but, um, and books where you have to solve puzzles. Yeah. yeah. I, I also love those things. Um, and I'm very into mysteries too. So this is kind of going to be, I think, amazing. <laughs> yeah. I hope at least. No, I mean, this is fun for us because we haven't really read like uh, just, you know, I feel like the books we've read might have mysteries in them yet, but we haven't read something that's kind of so solidly within the mystery genre. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've also read books that maybe have these like experimental elements to them, but isn't so solidly within this kind of like narrative experimental postmodern, yeah. like whatever you want to call that kind of thing going on here. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. Cause these are like, this is shit. That's my jam. Like I like this stuff. a lot. It seems almost like, you know, it's got some elements of Noman and some elements of Rupetta. You yeah. Know? yeah like, Rupetta was something I was going to bring up. Exactly. Th like those being books that we have done on this podcast before, and you can check out those right. episodes. Which is, which is interesting because um, Charlotte Geeter was how I found her podcast. Mm. Ah, very like, cool. Um, Small world. She was, I mean, I, I I follow her Twitter. We've talked a couple of times. We're not friends or anything, but she recommended your podcast on her Twitter, and I found you through that. Excellent. So. Well, that's awesome. I, I am a big fan of Charlotte, so that is, <laughs> like, warms she's, my heart a little cool. bit. <laughs> Um, very cool. So, yeah, so I think it is set in Chicago, as you mentioned. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. about it. Like from what I could tell, it got a lot of, um, like literary buzz when it was, mm -hmm. um, released and I saw something on the Lambda literary website. I'm not sure if it actually won any Lambda awards or if it won any awards mm -hmm. at all, but it got like a lot of very positive reviews when it came out. Um, which is cool. Uh, you know, I think like the New York Times yeah. reviewed it. Like, I, I, you know, it's sort of like the better review places all seem to pick it up and give it pretty, yeah. pretty solid reviews. Yeah, I was reminded because when you asked me to pick a book, I was like, oh, I have no idea what I want to read. And so I uh, went through NPR's book concierge, which is this thing oh, where they do cool. like they recommend books. Um, and uh this was like there and I was like, Oh, I have that on my Kindle. I enjoyed the first half when I read it. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I've, I've so, like seen the book concierge before, but I always sort of like forget about it or like I, I, <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a long time. And like the last time I looked at it though, and actually like read through them, I really liked the recommendations. Yeah. That's kind the, of a cool the thing. The recommendations are pretty cool. So I actually have only heard about the book concierge for the very first time this year due to uh Jin Jenny, like tweeting about it a bunch, um, mm -hmm. like friend of the pod. And so that is, uh, <laughs> that, that's funny. I was just listening to her podcast, like came back today finally. So I've been, I've been enjoying <laughs> that. Um, anyway, and I'll cut that. Uh, <laughs> um, cool. So I guess the other, so, so you got into this a little bit, Ben, but sort of like, you know, why this book in particular, I think we kind of talked a little bit. It obviously hits on themes that, mm -hmm. you know, are both personal to you in terms of this, like literary, like, what does it all mean? Kind of stuff as well yeah. as, like I think fit the podcast very well, like the kind of stuff yeah. we like to talk about. But yeah, is there any other sort of like specific stuff about this book that really spoke to you? Um, 
yeah, I guess like I I love books. <laughs> I have a really big soft spot for books that like, yeah. <laughs> just we can just stop it there and I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. But I I have a really big soft spot for books that are like very much about like bringing you into a specific world. And, like, mm. not just, like, telling the story of characters, but, like, giving you a bunch of background information about the world. Uh, I know we'll talk about it later, but, like, probably my favorite book of all time is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to admit how many times I've read that book, especially because <laughs> it's, like, a thousand pages. That um, is an extremely, like, you know, hygge book. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like a book where you're like, like, like the windows are like frosted over. It's cold outside, but it's warm inside, and you're like wrapped in a blanket, and you have like a, a nice drink. Like, yeah. <laughs> for me, it's for me, it's that the audiobook is exactly thirty three hours, which is a, almost exactly how long it takes for my mother lives overseas. And so 33 hours is almost approximately door to door flying from Washington oh, to man. China. Uh, That's and so, amazing. And so basically every time I go see my mother, I uh, I listen to the whole audiobook again. <laughs> that is in, like, oh, my God, I love that so much. <laughs> um, so it's, it, it fits pretty perfectly into my life. So and like, I also just love books that are like. I just want to really love to be immersed in the world, and I think that this book kind yeah, of does I mean, that in the same way, on a much smaller scale, the same way that uh, Jonathan Strange, Mr. Earl does. Footnotes, too. Right. Yeah, There's footnotes. A footnote While being I like a third, a third of the length. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I guess it is. There's definitely, I guess we should, we, we can get into this now a little bit, which is like, you know, uh, sort of like the format of this book is a particularly interesting one. And I think one of the things I wanted to do this episode is talk a little bit about these kind of like experimental formats in books. Cause it's a thing I really like and have read like, you know, I feel like some of, uh, but never like enough. And I know there's this like whole world of these kind of books that I have like barely even touched on. Um, but Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is actually what I haven't read that has been on my like to read list for a very long time. But the length is uh, I have a hard time reading, you know, novels for this podcast, much less like anything else, <laughs> <laughs> much less like thousands of pages of anything else. Well, yeah. whenever you whenever you do get around to it, uh, I will talk to you about it. I will corner you. Excellent. Excellent. I like that book a lot, actually. I I, I, I I really like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I think the TV show is not very good. Uh, sucks, yeah, it's it's impossible but... to adapt. Like it's I don't yeah. think I think it's actually probably as as good as it was going to get. But um I think Jonathan Strange like like this um something that jo- another thing that Jonathan Strange and the Ghost Network have in common is that they, they end up being kind of very specific commentaries on their format. Like, not just commentaries on the story, but commentaries on the format that they have taken. And and so it's hard to have um, Jonathan, to adapt Jonathan Strange, because it's format, like, it is a story about the failures of, the of like, the academic wor- world, right? right? And so then if you take it out of its format, which is a mock, li- a mock academic work, then you're losing a level of commentary that you can't really get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, think that's right, and and like you know, there's no way a TV show could do that, also, or at least it would have to be totally different, you know. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be like <laughs> exactly. a documentary and kind of like a end but, up being yeah. slightly like about something slightly different. Yeah, and, and the problem it. is yeah. just that t- like video documentaries just don't have the same 
place in the culture or totally. like exactly you know, well, exactly right and that's that's why right. it would end up yeah. being about something different even if yeah. you chose to right you don't you don't way. get like really highly academic like um video documentaries you just don't yeah. like right. i'm sure yeah. they're out there but it's not it's not I mean, something common enough that people would be able to commentate on it much and to my case, chagrin we don't in the napoleonic get era <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't have a video documentary set in the Napoleonic right, era right. without like some other element that makes that possible. Exactly. <laughs> fair, fair enough. I I also totally wrote my graduating thesis on Jonathan Stranger Mr. L. So I. Oh, that's that's awesome. Um, Wait, what what was like the the like broad what in broad strokes was that? <laughs> um, it, it was so to graduate from IB, you have to do a four thousand four hundred word. Uh, Thing called an extended essay and my extended essay was essentially making the argument that um the style and tone of Jonathan Strange Mr. Norrell was uh about the ultimate failure of academicization or like the the sterilization of academic work its ultimate failure to control full core because it cannot control what's outside of its bounds mm. and about how there's a sort of turning point in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell when the there's a turning point in the middle of the book without spoilers yeah. <laughs> uh, where uh, one of the characters sort of like decides that he is going to imitate the magic of the war of like the old world mm. and after that the whole like tone of the novel shifts and you can't like the first half is very like um is uh like a drawing room drama in the style of like Jane Austen. Uh. And the the second half like is trying to do that but is slowly being encroached on by like the like absolute horror that the drawing room drama has refused to engage with because there it's it can't. Yeah. Right? And that's I I I was I remember being incredibly impressed by that 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 shift when I read the book because it's been a long time, but, mm -hmm. but I, I just remember, I remember that in particular because it's like, it's, it's sort of not, it's not, it's not overly sharp. It happens like yeah. it's a real transition that's like carefully managed, right. but like it's a very, very powerful transition, like a very, from one thing to a very distant other thing, mm -hmm. you know, it, they, it goes a long way. The tone is very different after it happens. Yeah. And it's like, but not in a way that, I don't know. It's it's just it's a really, you know, it's a really good piece of writing. Like it's hard yeah. to do that. Like it's very, you know, and, uh, yeah, and like <laughs> the sub the sub thesis was about how like that's also a commentary on the academic works of black people and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um because of characters who are deliberately silenced by the main characters of the book and then eventually come back and like exist in this exist as powerful people in the horrible world that the drawing room can't understand. And um, one of the things that really frustrates me about, like, the response to that book is um, Susanna Clark is, like, a female academic. She has a lot of... Um, she hasn't written... She's Another book of hers is actually coming out next year. Oh, cool. Yeah, really? no. Cool. Um, I'm really, really excited for that. But uh, she hasn't written another book, but she's written a lot of, like, um, academic work. And a lot of and she's like, she's like a female academic writing about the failure of academia to like understand female like the horror of being a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like a lot of the responses to this were like, why aren't there more female characters? 
And I'm like, well, because she's writing something very, very, very specific, right? Like, this wouldn't about the silencing of women. Right. <laughs> and, like, if, if you suddenly have a woman who has a major voice in this, like, it, you can do a story about the silencing of women from the point of view of a woman, but that's not what she's doing. She's doing a story about the, like, revenge of a woman from the point of view of the people who want to silence her. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because really it's like I've, the type I've, of yeah. story that becomes is again like Rupetta to, you know, yeah. it's like where it is about the stories that don't get told in academia, <laughs> you know, but it becomes a very different story at that point instead of like the kind of, you know, like, oh, like magical yeah. men getting angry at each other and fighting. <laughs> right. Which is my only understanding so, of Jonathan Strange and Mr. <laughs> Norrell up until this point. It's, it's kind of, it's, I mean, like, that's the surface level. And then, right. it's, but it's absolutely not about that at right. the same time. It's, it's about that without being about that's that. That's good to know. Like, this makes me a lot more interested in actually picking up the book. I never, like, quite had it explained to me what it's about. And it's like, oh, no, this is stuff I like a lot. So I will. Also, it's, also, it's like the, some of the best work of descriptive writing, like, ever. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, I'm a big fan of that. So yeah, another book that I was thinking of when like reading the kind of intro to this was House of Leaves, um, yeah. which is also sort of like, I think in particular because like, like I said, I don't know, I said this before the, the episode, it's like this book is somewhat like, it's like found footage. It's like all these like found real, you know, in quote elements that like the author sort of like as a character mm -hmm. herself in the novel puts together into like, like edits this, like fat, all these found things into right. like one thing. And house of leaves also very much has that kind of feeling where like, you know, the author is showing you this like manuscript mm -hmm. that was written by this like con artist who stole it from this like blind guy who was like describing a mm -hmm. video that he was watching, but he's blind. So he couldn't watch it. He could only, you know, it's like all these kind of yeah. la layers deep. And like, I'm very much getting that sense from this novel too. That sort no. of like translation um, almost. Yeah. There's actually, it actually borrows almost don't, almost exactly a convention from House of Leaves. Um, borrows because House of Leaves was published about 15 years before this one mm. was. Um, and this is something that's said on the first page, so it's not really spoilers, but um, that uh, there's multiple people doing footnotes in this book, and who's doing footnotes is determined by what font they're using, mm. which is something that is... Del deliberately borrowed from house of leaves right that's interesting i actually because i have the um i have the kindle edition and so it, mm -hmm. the different fonts don't show up in the edition that i have which is really a bummer but they do <laughs> they are like um labeled at the bottom of each one yeah for for one i think for me i also have the kindle edition but uh, for me it's uh italic versus non-italic Oh, maybe that is the case, and I just didn't notice it. That is also I like think very that is, possible. That's the, that's the way that, that mine works. Okay, so, I think, so that, I think that it must be what happens. Way. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> You're not I don't idiot. notice things very well. Well, I, I do have a problem noticing stuff like that, so. <laughs> not great at puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> So that this is a really cool. Uh, I, I so I have not read House of Leaves. Oh, uh, even oh. though I'm sure I would really like it. It's um, good. Yeah, I feel like it's I one really of those like novels like that, that like people who you roll your eyes at like will recommend, and you kind of roll your eyes at them. But then like it's actually really good and like should be recommended. No, but like I I love 
I love the like, po- I love Pomo books by mm. like random white dudes. Right. Like I, I do. Like I, I, I just have to admit <laughs> I mean, it. Me like, too. I, you know. I, <laughs> like, I, yeah, me too. <laughs> the, the 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 dudes may or may not be problematic themselves, right. but I really like books like that. Right. And I know nothing about him. I, I you know, I don't want to like. Neither do I. That's why I may or may right, not. Right. Who knows? I don't know. Um, like. <laughs> Also, but I was also the, thinking of David Foster Wallace and right, like right. Pynchon and like room, kind you of. know, there's there's you know there's a, a million of Gaddis you know like all <laughs> these guys are like I I really like books like that so I would like House of Leaves and yeah. and I if you say this book is going to be like that I'm like all in yeah <laughs> another another thing that regarding like our previous discussion about uh, adaptation. Mm. Is that very recently, uh, Mark Daniel Danieleski, I think is how you pronounce his last, yeah. last name. Um, he, the author of House of Leaves, released um, three uh, speculative scripts for what House of Leaves would look like as a TV series oh, cool. <laughs> that he's adapted. And if you haven't read them, you should read them because he actually adds three additional layers of like, <laughs> of, of com- because. You can't, because, right, so like the book is like, um, the book is a a movie that's adapted into a nonfiction book that's commentated on by a con artist. Right. That's like then commentated on by a publishing company. Right. And then the script is like a TV documentary about a phenomenon that happened after House of Leaves was published. Oh, (laughs) yes. Very good. That's so, I mean, that is exactly, I think, how you do adaptation correctly. You have to, like... Make it work for the medium, you know, right. and, exactly. and like that's what he's doing. That sounds right. great. I love that. <laughs> well, I might have to bump that up on the queue. I mean, it's just that's just super cool. Uh, I like all of those things. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I feel like that's a very like you know, if you like this book, you'll like that one. If you like that one, you'll like this book. Kind of exactly, you know, like a pretty pretty. Probably not 100%, but like a pretty good one-to-one. If you like one, you'll probably enjoy the other. So Um, one thing that this reminds me of is something that I I think I've talked about before on the podcast. It's the connection between postmodern, like American postmodern fiction mm -hmm. and actually like, you know, like Western European postmodern fiction too. And mysteries stories yes uh, yeah, i think there's like a really strong bit. connection there and it's obvious you know probably to a lot of people and like a lot of these authors are doing it very deliberately but like there's this there's this sense that the mystery story the like the classic whodunit type mystery story mm-hmm. is the kind of is like one of the key metaphors for understanding like postmodern stories what mm-hmm. they're what they want to do what a lot of them want to do well, like a pension or like a david foster wallace wants to do a lot of the time is take or or a Borges or Umberto uh, Eco yeah. or like you know you know a mm-hmm. lot of what they want to do a lot of the time is to take a mystery story and then just like instead of having there be an answer to who done it mm-hmm. they like exp- they like they cut the knot at the end or they like tie an impossible knot or they do something that isn't providing yeah. a clear answer at right. the very end right. to who did it. I mean, you know? I think even someone like. Um uh, what's his name? Uh, Douglas Douglas Adams in the in like his uh, mystery stories like also does some elements yeah. of that. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of Pomo with and, Dirk and, Gently and, uh, stories. Yeah, and that's yeah. one of the reasons I really like Dirk Gently stories. Yeah, I think fun. it's such a cool it's such a cool move, and it and it really it it makes a lot of sense because um, you know if if what you're interested in is uh, kind of 
questioning the foundations of narrative and like just getting people to think about narrative itself in a different way. Like one of the things that helps you that can help you do that. It's obviously not the only way to do it is to have a very clear narrative model to to work off of. Right. right. And like what could be a clearer narrative model to work off of than the classic whodunit narrative well, model? Well, I think it's one of the interesting things about like the mystery genre is not a genre of like setting. It's not a right. genre of like, oh, there are these like world elements or like character. I mean, there are characters, but like it's mostly a genre of like narrative, right? Like there's a yeah. certain narrative yeah. arc. And so if you want to like talk about narrative arcs, I think it's really useful to take like, well, here's the narrative arc you all know. Let's break it mm. or let's like yeah, not exactly. break it and like still comment on it in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I think also like so. um one of my like a a sort of group of my friends uh, right now is getting really deep into ARGs, mm. which is alternate reality mm. games. Um, cool. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is like, why are so many like of these like horror games about like cults or whatever? Right. And sort of the <laughs> answer is like, well, because if you if you're doing a mystery, you like you want to give people the feeling that they're stumbling on something horrible, mm. and that like I think the sort of the same thing like applies to postmodern work is that like you want to you want to get people to understand that like either the basis of our society or the basis of how we're understanding narrative is kind of wrong, right. and that like you need them to stumble on the feeling like stumble into this realization that the way narrative works is bad <laughs> like and that the way like the way that we have been fed narrative fundamentally leaves things out and i don't think you can do that without sort of like the mystery and horror elements yeah like and so you you end up like why are so many of these novels about like discovering something at the heart of a mystery mm-hmm. and like you know or at the heart of the house in the case of House of Leaves. Right. Um, and I think it's it's part of that, like, wanting people to have the realization that not just something in the, in the book is wrong, but something in the world and the narrative is wrong, in our world and the narrative is mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of an easy way to literalize that. It's like, oh, there's right. a secret society of some sort that is like, you know, you believe the world works this way, but actually it works that way. And like, exactly. that's a very easy way to make that like literal and kind of understandable. Which is why I think the ghost network is kind of interesting um, because it's, it's kind of like that without the horror, like mm-hmm. house of leaves and John strange, Mr. Norrell are both very much works of horror, right? Like mm-hmm. they're scary. <laughs> like <laughs> house I, of I, leaves I, is um, maybe the scariest book I've ever read. And I really like horror. Yeah. So. I th- I'm pretty, I'm pretty desensitized. Like I don't like jump scares. I don't watch a lot of horror films, but Mm. I, um, I'm pretty desensitized, like psychological horror and House of Leaves scared the shit out of me. Yeah. It kept me up at night. Like no joke kept me up at night. Is, is it sort of, are are we talking about like, um, it's like existential uh, horror done really well. There's also, so there's this one out like, there's these little elements that like the whole thing is this sort of like dreamscape in some ways where it's like Mm -hmm. the whole thing is about this house that like, you know, it starts off where like 
this guy buys this house. He like starts doing some measurements and like looking at the blueprints because he wants to do some work on it. And in measuring, he realizes that the inside is like three inches bigger than the outside. And like he can't get his math to work out any other way. Like it's definitely bigger on the inside than on the outside. Yeah. And like, and like oh, oh <laughs> I'm already getting chills. I, yeah, and then it, like there's all these things in it that are like that are like, oh, something in your house is wrong. Right. Yeah. And you haven't noticed it and you haven't done anything about it. And like and it's gonna fuck you up, right? Yeah. And like there's something like it's not even like it's so scary to think that like oh something in my house something in my world has changed and I haven't noticed it, right? Right. Like oh, makes man. you like want to measure the inside yeah. of your house. This is this yeah. is this is really good classic like existential horror. Right. Yeah, I I I know what you're talking about. That reminds me of like uh, you know, all the old horror guys, Arthur Machen, for example. Well, talking about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Morell reminds me of Arthur Machen or like. Um, What's the guy, Robert Parker, the king in yellow guy, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. things like that. But then like the house stuff reminds me of, um, oh man, what's, uh, in the, in the fifties in America, there was a cosmic horror guy. Hold on. I have his book. Hold on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Clark Ashton Smith. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah anyway. But yeah, it reminds me of Clark Ashton Smith. Right. Uh, it's like, mm-hmm. because it's like taking these you know, as opposed to, as opposed to like, you know, the horror of the late 19th century, the early 20th century, like that was similar to this, where it's mm-hmm. kind of involved with myth and legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it almost is dealing with like story ideas that are sort of removed from everyday life, but mixed into with everyday, everyday life. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's maybe not as it's not as banal and, and ordinary. It doesn't involve the ordinary in the same way because a lot of it has to do so much with extraordinary things or magical things or strange yeah, tales right. from faraway places. But Clark Ashton Smith is more like in your ordinary life, among all the banal, ordinary things, there is something terrible <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or something unexplained. <laughs> I, I also I also wonder if maybe the reason that a lot of um a lot of this sort of like postmodern horror mystery stuff is mystery is because sort of that sentiment sort of grew out of like the uh, hard-boiled detective fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like, totally. Because that's also the same thing. It's like something in your world is wrong. Like everybody here looks normal, especially like not um, what's his name? Lynch. Nah, let me I took a my last semester, I failed this class because I just didn't show up the last three weeks. Um, but I took a that's relatable. <laughs> I took a I took a def, I took a detective fiction class. Um, oh, cool! So I have all the books on my Kindle. <laughs> One second, um, I can tell you exactly what I'm thinking about. Um, but like, um, oh, Ross McDonald. Oh, Ross. Oh, man. Cool. (laughs) Um, We're like you're like walking through like the plastic fake world. Right. And like everybody there is treating this like plastic like this like very hollow, empty world as normal. And then you like sort of realize that the narrative they're telling themselves is wrong. Right. And that like they're actually monsters. (laughs) Yeah. Is he the guy that wrote Stefford Wives? Um, I don't think so. But let me... 
It also reminds, I mean, like the other thing that reminds me of, like I said, David Lynch, because like Twin yeah, Peaks, I think right. is, the, yeah. is the like TV yeah, totally. version of this where like, you know, oh, small town, everything looks like normal and good. And as soon as the detective digs, like even like, you know, scratches his nail across the surface, you realize <laughs> like, oh, shit, shit be fucked up here. Um, right. I mean, that also like Twin Peaks is like the perfect example of like what this would look like as a TV series because it's yeah. satirizing or like horror, like making horrible the idea that like sitcom like right, right, or not like the, the sitcom, soap opera. Like the, this sort of like, the soap opera is right. the word I was looking for, but right, exactly, yeah, totally. <laughs> but I think it's really smart to connect this to detective fiction because I think like a lot of the people that created the tropes that we're familiar with for uh you know in the postmodern literary world were people who loved detective fiction like the french ulipo guys loved detective fiction mm -hmm. to the point where i mean the, the phrase film noir exists because that was the title of a series of french translations of american detective books into french um, that was spearheaded mm -hmm. by like a bunch of the um by a bunch of like French literary types who were all into experimental literature in, in, in their day job, but like loved American de hard boiled detective fiction, <laughs> like as a thing that they loved. And like, you know, it's, and I think one of the reasons a court, I remember reading this awesome essay that I want to find now that was about like, it was about this one particular random pulpy detective, American detective book mm. from the fifties that like people have, it's not like a famous one. I don't think, although it may like, it, it probably should undergo a renaissance because it sounds amazing. <laughs> but basically, it's 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 this it's like a detective story that wants to deconstruct detective stories, but it's not postmodern at all. It doesn't involve any kind of shifts right. in weird narrative. It's just like within the story, it just sort of it depict it, it starts out seeming like it's going to be a normal detective story, and then the characters actually are like more realistic than hard boiled detective characters, and they yeah. do like more realistic things. Mm -hmm. And in that in that way, it sort of you know, calls into question all the assumptions of detective stories. Well, while, while you essay, oh god, yeah, I was just gonna well, so, <laughs> go for it. Go ahead, dude. I, I was just gonna say, like, while while you were looking for it, like, I like this always reminds me that, like, you know, we think of postmodern or like this is type of experimental fiction as a relatively like modern new thing, but it's not right. Like any like as soon as people begin writing they also begin writing about writing and like you know commenting through writing about the stuff that they're writing i always think of like don quixote is you know often considered like the first novel but it's also very much like a story about a about all this stuff about a guy who like reads too much and can't tell fiction from reality and the like sequel to don quixote is about like his perception of the re you know, of like the literary world's reaction to the original Don Quixote, right? Like there's all these mm -hmm. like layers of this kind of like experimental writing that happened from the very beginning. So the idea that like, not only were these folks writing this kind of, you know, like hard boiled detective fiction, but also like those same guys were also breaking their own conventions and like playing with those right. conventions. I think it's like good, just good to remember, like good to remember that like this stuff isn't just new. And like part of yeah. why the postmodern label always like bugs me a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's also worth saying that this has also been like a really useful vehicle for people who were like, the sorts of people that didn't traditionally get published to get mm -hmm. published. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, a lot of, 
mm-hmm. a lot of uh, women and minorities and you know non-traditional people of different kinds have been able to get mysteries published in particular because right. it's considered like a subaltern genre, right? You know, and it's considered like well, it doesn't matter what's in the book so long as it sells. It's like one of those things, yep. and so mm-hmm. you know publishers were willing to to take a chance on it on them more and like as a result you have uh, you know in a weird way like it's a it happens to be the case you know in america that this is a genre where at least in some corners you've gotten more opportunities than you might otherwise have although Mm -hmm. you know that not to say that it was easy i i i this is something else that i yeah yeah but so this this essay i i still can't find it but I'll, i'll try to find it later um basically made the point that the uh that it's the nate it's the the it quoted um i want to say like jean baudrillard or somebody somebody like that i I can't remember exactly who but a very 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 famous french literary figure and philosopher was quoted describing his view of like american hard-boiled detective books and Mm -hmm. like how much he loved them and he explained that you know it had to do with the way that they the, I think he he said something like they they draw a bullseye on mm-hmm. the like question of reality or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it was so good. <laughs> I think it's I think it's also really interesting. It's like so many um, non-American, non-white people have like even if they're not writing detective fiction, have then pulled from detective fiction as a very deliberate source. Um, like Murakami, like. All, right. almost all of his work like draws almost very directly from this sort of hard-boiled right field I mean, one of his books is even named like hard-boiled <laughs> it's, it's called it's called hard it's hard-boiled wonderland at the right. end of the world right. i think yep yeah that's um it. i had a wild last semester of college before i dropped out because i was taking a detective fiction class alongside a murakami class that was taught by one of murakami's uh translators oh cool that's cool. And it was like it was like kind of a, a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, um, oh, go ahead. No, go on. Oh, I was going to say the the other thing that, like, I feel like there's also some like some of what you were talking about, Matt, in terms of like it being to some at least small degree easier for some types of people to get published in Mm -hmm. this mystery genre. I feel like the same is kind of true of romance. And in fact, there's often a lot of overlap between romance and mystery. Yeah, totally. We're like, they're similar both in that, like it's less about setting, like the genre is kind of about a certain narrative arc, but Mm -hmm. also you, I feel like you often kind of feel, find elements from one in the other, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'll have these kind of like really pulpy, but still really smart, like mysteries that are, also romances right and yeah and even even in like so i watched um the maltese falcon for the first time with my grandfather a couple of months ago and, which one uh the the movie there's like three or four oh, versions i of- i don't know it was black and white i i really i couldn't tell you beyond that <laughs> who was the main character uh was it some old guy humphrey bogart it was, i believe it was humphrey bogart yeah, 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 yeah okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah it was whatever he put it on i was like this is the one you should see um <laughs> But, uh, but like, it, I don't know. It's just really interesting to me the like ways in which like, like even at that point, it's sort of like commenting on the structure of 
like these mystery stories. And it's also this sort of like, it's both deeply pulpy and like, you know, obviously really problematic in a lot of ways, but also like Mm -hmm. strangely like modern in a lot of ways. Like I I watch a lot of old movies with my grandfather and like that Mm -hmm. felt like the one that you could see being released now more so than any of the like old epics or like westerns or like other types mm. of stuff that we watch together like there's something very yep. like modern feeling about the way that the story worked in this world totally oh my god yes i i i mean this is this is so true because i think it's it's like it's almost like the very simplicity of the concept of a detective mm. story or a murder mystery or like a whodunit enables it to be like it's it's so simple and mm. there's so many of them Mm-hmm. There, it's such a rich, fertile field. Like, it just enables experimentation. It it it, it enables this like flowering of right. of like lots of yeah. different things, and then you can kind of like you know cut the cut the cream off the top or whatever. And you what what you get is just this incredible richness of different weird and mm. complicated things. The other thing that's interesting to me is that this is I think this is true in like other, you know, I think you alluded to this. Yeah. Been already, but like this is true in, in in other cultures too. Like there are few genres, you know. Romance is probably the other. I mean, in as yeah. much as you know, these are genres at all, but whatever. But like, in as much as it makes sense to talk about the genres as being the same thing when we're leaving one cultural space. Yeah. But there are few things that are that are as global as the whodunit or the romance. Right. You know, mm. like it's a type of story that people have. You know been giving takes on for as long as there have been stories i mean every 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 genre has a version of this every Mm -hmm. culture has a version of this every like subgenre has it has its own version of a whodunit that's why there are like awesome sci-fi whodunits and like western whodunits you know and like and uh and romantic whodunits and you know whodunits that are set you know that that like you know you'll you'll get like a snippet of this inside a longer story Mm -hmm. um you know, inside, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, Journey to the West, you know, one episode of Journey, to, like there's more than one, actually, probably. I don't remember all of them that well, but like there's some episodes where, you know, the characters in Journey to the West like come upon uh, a thing and like they, they come to a new area and they meet some guy and he tells them a story and it seems like it might not be true and they have to figure out what's going on. And like, right. you know, they investigate and it's such a classic idea, but it there's so many ways to do it. I, I mean, I, I almost think it has to do with the very simplicity of it. Right. And yeah. And, yeah. I, I also, I also wonder how much this sort of like this book owes to like serial, um, which came out about a year before it was published. So who knows how far it was in writing, but like, and sort of that wave of like investigation as mm. the story, mm. like nonfiction, like a nonfiction investigation as not just like making reporters and people who write nonfiction stories out to be detectives. Right. Oh, right. That's and sort making of happened. The story of how they found out what happened part of the story itself. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, that stuff was about that was happening before, but there was such a, massive wave of it that happened right around that time yeah yeah like to the point that i now get immensely frustrated with like everybody who every like fiction podcast that's like oh yeah this is all about the reporters and not at all about what they're reporting on (laughs) um for real (laughs) 
I, I mean, you know, that's this is kind of a nod to my another thing that I love about this is is that because like this genre and deconstructions of this genre both have such a long history, we're now like long past the point where you know, everybody in the audience is already familiar, familiar, not just with the conventions of the genre, but with the conventions of deconstructions of the genre. Mm -hmm. And so you can do another layer of stuff more easily when you're deconstructing whodunits, as opposed to, you know, when you think about like an epic fantasy, most, I think like epic fantasy doesn't have the, sure, it's a really popular thing. And like, you know, massive Hollywood franchises worth billions of dollars are, are, are pinned on it. But Mm -hmm. it's still, I think the case that like the, the genre conventions are not so intimately familiar to the audience that the deconstruction of it is also intimately familiar to them. You exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get this thing where like when it comes to a whodunit, like House of Leaves is a very successful book. It's real. I, like my impression of it is, is that it like sold really, really well. And it's like a touchstone to a lot of people. And Infinite mm-hmm. Jest, for God's sake, is like a really right. Like, I mean, I need to say no more about that book. Other than that, it's insanely, you right. know, uh, huge, yeah. right? Like, so the fact also that books like that can large. be huge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the fact that books like that can be so popular, I think, has to do with the level of familiarity in the audience with those elements. Like, if mm-hmm. if it were, like, further out there, mm-hmm. it would be harder for that many people to be into it, right. you know? But because, exactly. yeah. you that That is interesting, this point about, like, you know, fantasy movies... And the sort of like difficulty of deconstructing them in this kind of popular venue. But I do then think about like the superhero genre, which is sort of like the only movie genre right now. But I do. I actually I wonder I wonder about that. Like, I almost feel like something similar to detective fiction. No, I think I think you're right to bring that up. Yeah. Like they get deconstructed, like even even Infinity War is in some ways like a deconstruction, both literally and like narratively of these types of stories or Watchmen or the boys. Those are like what come to mind to me is like it's like we're going to we're going to like turn this on its head, you know, and if they're you know, as far as I know, those are popular shows. I think that's the same kind of thing where it's possible to do weirder stuff because people are all enough. People are already familiar with the kind of quote unquote normal stuff. Right. You know, big scare quotes, but you know, right. (laughs) Cool. Well, are there other things we want to touch on here before we wrap up the pre-read? Yeah. I think that's the two things. The other thing they don't think we've touched on at all is like, so, pop oh yeah pop celebrity stars. yeah yeah <laughs> this whole story is a story about pop stars and we haven't talked about them at all right <laughs> oh see i didn't even know that That's, yeah I'm, that, I'm... i was i think we might want to save that for the post read because i want to talk no about worries. specifics a little bit there but like definitely like this this is a story about celebrity and about like parasocial relationships with celebrities and like all that uh, yeah stuff. i guess I, I like i have like the like not talking about it but i have like the like reading book club question which is like how right did this book get it yeah oh good Uh. especially like um because it's about it's a book about 2009 written in like the early 2010s but we're reading it into 2020 yeah and i kind of i kind (laughs) of feel like i kind of feel like Without spoiling, I kind of feel like there's some things that we know now that make this book's take on pop stars and celebrities kind of... Oh, man. Not wrong, necessarily, but not Like, already dated. Already dated, right. <laughs> I'm going to be super interested 
to think about that. Yeah, that's such a great like book clubby <laughs> question. Like that's the yeah. that's so good. That's super useful. That is key. <laughs> All right. Well, we, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the post read, but I wanted to maybe talk about games a little if you guys are up for it, because yeah, we've mean, got yeah, Ben here, who's uh, a game game spurt, game expert, <laughs> game maker, I'm a game maker, <laughs> game writer. <laughs> That's a normal word for the thing. <laughs> So uh, I obviously, you know, have not read this book, don't know as much about it. But clearly, if it's in this POMO zone, if it's in this, you know, deconstructing zone and detective yeah. zone and like, you know, building elaborate edifices and looking at them from weird angles zone, mm-hmm. like games might be involved. So what do you think readers might want to think about re-games and this book? Um, Especially from like a game design perspective, I think yeah. would be really cool because like... Mm-hmm we're thinking about the structure of a story and like, that's something I know that you have thought about a lot. Do you think there are certain things that, that um, like book clubby questions almost that, (laughs) that, that relate to the structure of the book and like, or is there like a way that detective stories have a particular kind of mechanics that is, that relates to game design in an interesting way? Yeah. So I, I think that like, one thing I want to think about this book is that, like, um, going back to, like, the idea of, like, either, like, Dan Brown or alternate reality games where you're solving puzzles to get further into the mm-hmm. narrative. Like, I kind of think that that's, that this game is kind of, this. I just called this book a game. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this That this book is kind of like that and that each chapter sort of, I, without spoilers, each chapter sort of poses a problem. Like, a specific mm. sort of nugget of a puzzle about where the story is going to be headed. And and that you have to sort of get through it and all the associated chaff of, like... Well, it's actually all incredibly important. It's not chaff. But all, like, the associated, like, facts and histories and stuff in order to, like, progress to the next puzzle. Interesting. Which is... It's almost Which like very, mist or something in that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very, it's very mist-like, and I, I also think that like, it, this is a story about maps, <laughs> like very concretely about how we understand built environments and maps. Mm. And I think that like, there's something very gamey about just handing a player a map, right? Yeah. Mm. And like, the thing is, is that. I not I can't I don't know about how to ask this question without spoiling it. Um like <laughs> like in what ways are maps games? Right. It's <laughs> kind of a thing that I think this this story poses. Yeah. Because like one of the main objects in the story is a map that people have to solve. Oh cool. <laughs> very cool. And, I love that. And and that's like very much it's so it's like in in what way has like the mystery at the heart of this sort of like gamified for the people, the characters who participate it, but also the readers, the like the concept of understanding your built environment. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I very much think there's some characters in this book who, who understand the built environment they are living in as a sort of game or puzzle to solve. Right. You know, the, uh, the French word for card as in mm-hmm. playing card and map. It's the same word. Oh, or it's right. a homophone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, so that, that reminds me a lot of um, 
Jeff Maynaw, who writes the Building blog, also wrote this uh, book called The Burglar's Guide to the City, uh, which is right down there. I can't quite reach it right now. Um, but it is specifically... Uh, like it's a nonfiction book where he interviewed a bunch of both um, law enforcement officers as well as criminals about the way that criminals perceive like the mm. city around us and like buildings and architecture. Mm. Uh, Cause he's someone who does a lot of like uh like building blog is all about mm. architecture and speculative architecture and like the like mental geography, that sort of stuff. And so it's very much about like how do you like, I look at a building and I see a building and there's a way into it. And that is the door. Whereas like a burglar sees a building and they see, you know, a, you know, set of defenses and ways into those defenses that might be the door might be windows, might be the walls themselves. Right. Like, and so they kind of like, and I, I feel like there's this element we've been talking about of like, Oh, the ways in which like narrative lies to you and the world lies to you. And one of the ways that like architecture lies to you is that like the way into the building is through the front door. And it's like, well, that is one right. way into a building. <laughs> and like when I, when I think about games and maps, I very much think about this kind of thing of like one of the ways of like solving these, right. Like, a heist is in some way like a puzzle in the real world. It is taking like yes. a building in the real world and turning, gamifying it into a puzzle. Yeah. yeah. All right. But I think it's also really interesting because an another thing that like I think about a lot when I think about maps, that is also the same thing as mechanics, which is like, in mm. what ways are maps flying to you or in what ways are mechanics flying to you? Yeah, right. Yeah. So like, I think a lot about like the question, the quote, um, I know you've talked about him on the podcast before. I don't know if you've read his books, but there's a quote from um, from Jeff Vandermeer yep. that's like uh, that's what it was the map, but the first layer of deception, a way of emph emphasizing some things and making other things invisible. Right, and that's from Annihilation, isn't it? Because I've read that yeah. quote before. <laughs> yeah, it's from the it's from the it's from the it's from Annihilation. Another one of my favorite books. Very good. I'm about to get. I'm about to get the lighthouse tattooed on my leg, <laughs> and I've I've had gin, I've had dinner with Jeff Vandermeer, and he's great. Oh, like, cool! Just like cool. really, really stunningly great. Awesome. He comes off as uh, such a grumpy old man on Twitter. I'm glad to hear that. Like, <laughs> that's a internet he, persona. He, 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 he is grumpy. Like when I when I <laughs> talked to him at uh, like I went to he did a. So, like, I, I actually... Let me see if I can link this to you. I wrote something for his blog. Oh, cool. Um, Very cool. Yeah, we'll definitely cool. put when that I was in, in the high show school. notes. Uh, when I was in high school, I wrote, a, uh, like, a... I wrote him a letter, which he then had me write it, turn into an essay and publish on his blog. And he's, like, kind of really grumpy in person, but, like, in, like, a kind of, like... I'm just grumpy because I think the world is bad, <laughs> but I like you personally kind of way. Good, yeah. good. Um, um, I know this type of person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing I was thinking about is that, like, maps tell you which level of the world you're going to engage in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, when you give somebody a subway map, you're not expecting them to drive. Right. Yeah. Right. When you give somebody a walking map, you're not expecting them to take the subway. Mm. And, like, the same thing happens with mechanics because, um, like, when I give somebody... 
if you're just role playing without a structure, you can do whatever you want. Like, and you can decide what things come into focus and what things don't come into focus. But giving you, giving me a game designer, giving you a system is telling you which things I want to make visible in the story that you might not want to make visible in the story or which things I think don't matter in a story or which things I trust you to sort of determine on your own. And every, every game is different in that way. But, like, to go back to private cathedrals, like, you could just, any person could just write letters back and forth as characters. But I've specifically made a mechanic that highlights censorship, right? Mm -hmm. And that asks you to engage with that and to map that in your stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, I, I wonder in... In the book, there's a lot of, like, discussion about map layers and, like, who can see what inside a map mm. with your knowledge. And, like, I, I think there's a lot of thought to be thought about about, like, maps, but also games and puzzles as deception. Yeah. Right. Oh, this is right. awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I love this. I mean, it reminds me like when, I, you know, if, if any of our listeners ever play video games that have maps in them, right? Like as a mm-hmm. player interacting with this is actually like, you know, when you pick up a new game that you've never played before and you are learning how to play it, like yeah. one of the first things you learn is, okay, what am I looking for? Like, mm-hmm. and like the game tells you what you're looking for. Right. And that's no different from like being alive in the world. Right. <laughs> but like in the game, it's everything is carefully designed. And so if, right. if, if, if game X works in the following way, where like what you have to do is you have to wander around the world picking up widgets and like widgets locations are marked on your map and you have to go to those locations. You're not going to be looking for like characters to meet right you're going to be looking for widgets mm-hmm. and like say say there are lots of characters to meet but their locations are not marked on the map you know i mean a lot of players will never meet those characters and they'll never right. even think right. to go to meet them because what they'll think to do is only just the thing that's that's written for them to do mm-hmm. right which is which is why like i choose like i now i'm getting better at choosing games like i used to just be like Oh, that game kind of sent, like somebody like in, is enjoying that game. I'm going to buy it, and then I have a bunch of games that I'm never going to finish because they're not games that work with my playstyle. Yeah, because like I love in tabletop games. Like when I'm telling a story with friends, I love games that give me that let me like stumble on things and discover things. But when I want to play video games, I don't like. I don't I like to have clear goals in video games because what I do is I sit down to play them so I can feel accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> <Which is laughs> and and so I I now self-select video games that allow me to have those goals. I completely understand this totally. Like I, I I feel like I'm very similar in the difference between how I want to play when I'm playing a tabletop game and how I want to play when I'm playing a video game. I mean and it works the same with, you know, other different types of game. Like yeah. if I'm playing a game with a lot of people, there's a certain kind of game I want to play. It's not the same kind of game that I want to play when I'm alone. Yeah. Like, right. And that's, you know, that's just probably true for everybody, but everybody has, just has different preferences. And the really interesting thing is when you think about your preferences and why you have them and how games either accommodate that or fail to accommodate that. Right. And it's, it's a very similar question to the question of like when when like I think sometimes people get put off when they see sort of deep philosophical sounding sentences like when people making claims about 
the map mm-hmm. versus the territory or like what can what does this map even mean and stuff and like i love right. claims like that and i think that's a fascinating conversation but a lot of people probably get put off because it sounds so removed from real life right. but i think it's not actually at all removed from real life these are very concrete things right like you like you were saying with the subway map when somebody gives you a subway map and like marked on it are museums that's very different from if somebody gives you a subway map and marked on it is their house right, right. you know what i mean like Right. Those are just different days you're going to have. Or like, you know, like a subway map. One of the interesting thing about maps and games, right? Like, is they're also useful in certain applications. Like you were, you were bringing this up a little bit, Ben, where like a subway map is really, really well designed if what you want to do is use the subway to get to a certain place. Mm-hmm. If you're using like multiple methods of transportation to getting to that place, it is less well designed. If you are like just walking to a place, it's terribly designed and you should not look at a subway map. <laughs> right. But it's like because it's so useful in this one situation, it like gains that usefulness by like lying about the rest of the situations that yeah. exist by like not including that context. Yeah, exactly. And it's fascinating how it changes how you look at the world. If you are if you are actually walking, it's like say you're a tourist in a city you've never been before and you've got up on your phone, you've got like some sort of tourist map that highlights like, you know, like places of historical interest or something like that. Mm -hmm. As you walk around, occasionally looking at your phone, you know, you're going to be looking at the city through the lens of that map. You're going to be seeing Mm -hmm. you're going to be aiming your eyes at the things that the map is telling you to aim your eyes at. Mm. You're probably routing your route to those yeah, places instead exactly. of through other streets. Yeah, I mean, it relates to the building block, or the, um, not uh, the... Burglar's what's Guide. What's the name? Yeah, the Burglar's Guide to the City, because, you know, literally, it, like, no matter what you are, you know, uh, you can use these sort of, like, a map or, like, a similar kind of design tool to, like, shape your own viewing of things. And whether you realize it or not, your viewing of things is being shaped by things like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Another thing I like to think about in terms of like games and this sort of like a narrative is the ways in which like, so like one thing I like to do, I've talked about this a little bit is like, I just do enjoy reading RPGs. Like I have a bunch of RPGs that I have like no intention of ever playing. And I just like enjoy reading the RPG books, whether they be mm-hmm. setting books, uh, modules, like certain adventures, or even just like different rule sets that I'll never play. Um, and one of the reasons I like doing this is because I think I approach them in the same way that I do postmodern literature, where there's like mm-hmm. an element of like what it is doing is suggesting stories instead of telling stories, right? Like mm-hmm. something like Infinite Jest, yeah. like, like Infinite Jest has a plot and it has a climax. It's just that that climax does not happen on screen. And the only way to figure it out is to actually like figure it out based on like other stuff that does happen on screen. And like, that is kind of what the experience of reading an RPG story is. And that it's like suggesting these are the different kinds of plots available. And some read more like books and some read less like books. I think of like, you know, Borges has like a, you know, kind of like relatively famous story where like part of the story is just like listing off a bunch of, um, like titles of books that don't actually exist, but these like titles of these books kind of suggest a world actually, um, uh, stars, my pocket, like grains of sand did something very similar in it's like introduction where it's like, there's all these books that the main character is reading and it suggests a thing. And that also reminds me of like a random table. In a tabletop That's exactly RPG. what I was gonna say. Yep. Like it's it's exactly the same. It's like when I um 
when I'm writing a, a game and I'm making a list of like classes or yes. right now I'm working on uh, supplementary playbooks for a game called Beam Saber and I'm writing lists of like things that your pilot can have. Yep. <laughs> like things your characters can have is the same different thing. It's like um, I'm suggesting a world by suggesting a world in which these items have been made. <laughs> Right. Right. Exactly. And exactly. Which they have importance to certain types of people. Right. And like designing a character, suggesting what this playbook is by giving them, by giving the character a list of things they can draw from that work like verbs that are like, mm-hmm. how can this character interact in the world? What is this character like? Because they have these things on them. Oh yeah. man. I, I absolutely love the reading RPG books as postmodern literature. Like, I think, um, I, I knew that you did this, Adrian. Um, but I think that sentence should be like the title of something. I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I just like, <laughs> I've, I, like, I, I will say, like, I, I've read RPG books for a very long time. No, I, I and I, I knew that you did. Right, like, no, but, no, but, 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 like, that specific, like, the realization that I read them as postmodern literature was actually due to something I read by someone actually, like, writing this essay of, like, oh, what, cool. the, what it's like, this is how I write some of this stuff. Like, I think about mm-hmm. this postmodern literature. I want to say it was this guy named Patrick Stewart who's part of the like old school renaissance blogosphere thing. I'm not yeah. positive it was him or not. He writes really cool stuff that I really like reading though. It, so- it sounds probably like something that he would say. Right, exactly. If it wasn't him, it was like one of those folks. Um, and it sounds like something he would say. But mm-hmm. there's definitely like... I don't know. I have this idea for like a project that I'll probably never actually do, which is like write an RPG book that is specifically not designed to be played, but is designed to be read as a story. Mm, yeah. Adrian, Adrian, you, you absolutely have to, I will, I will send you some recommendations. Okay. Wonderful. There's this whole, there's this whole movement right now and maybe, and maybe stuff that you are not, that like you may not like engage with hundred percent because mm. it's very, it's not, it's very soft. Like it's not, not a lot of it is very soft. Like it's very like, old school renaissance it's very very different from that it's like a reaction to that in fact but there's a whole school of like rpg designers who are coming up right now who are writing what are called lyric games Ooh, okay i think i have seen some of these and i like them which is like which is like um games that are designed to be read not played exactly yeah Mm. you know my friend my friend wrote one of these that was um oh what was it called i forget what it's called but it's essentially like you know it's like the game is like you get a you get a like u-haul and you put a bunch of like people in it and they fight and like the, yeah like and, and it's not designed to be played per se but it is like it, i was really I'll, I'll i'll link it i have a bunch of friends in the city who do write these kinds of games as well yeah i i linked in our sky chat i linked one of my games which is called mr hawk which is a game that can only be played by tony hawk um, <laughs> i love it um and uh everybody else is welcome to read it but it can only be played by tony hawk um and uh another one like my friend uh rpg natalie wrote one called a knife which is about literally actually dueling with knives and therefore it can't be played right right it's like 
It's great. I mean, it, you you can play it if you're very, very, very careful. Right. And that, that <laughs> is something I do really love is like taking these like story game like conventions, which do tend to be very soft and very lyrical and like evocative more than like yeah. crunchy mechanically. And then like applying them to like dangerous real world situations. Like it's such a like wild yeah. juxtaposition and one that like I feel like gets at a really like certain real kind of experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is very cool. This is very cool. I think this is very interesting. I'm very interested to read about this. Yeah. So I guess I guess we should. Um, I know I need to wrap up a little bit because I have real world work yeah. to do. Sadly. Um, but are there any other things that we should mention about this book before you know getting into the post read next time? Um. Not really. Okay. Good. I feel good. I feel very I feel good. Like I feel like I'm excited to read this book. Yeah, me too. I'm really looking me forward too. to it. I'm excited to reread most of it and then get to the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely do that a lot as well. So <laughs> um, I'm definitely excited to read some of this stuff that, you know, you've linked. Yeah, we will link a bunch of this stuff in the show yeah. notes too. So I feel like this is one where like, check out our show notes links because there'll be a bunch of stuff both like free and cheaply available to kind of check yeah. out about this stuff. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Cool. Well, thank you, Ben, right. so much for thank like you so much. suggesting this, this and coming on. An exquisite pleasure. I <laughs> am so glad that you came on. No, this has been really great. I've gotten to meet you. <laughs> no, I, I got more things to say to you all. <laughs> well, thankfully, <laughs> we're off, we're going to be like, able to talk more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all so right. So this is great. Cool. So thanks everybody. Thanks to uh, uh, WJ for our music. Thanks to Noah Bradley for our art. Um, Spectology will return. Yeah. Spectology with... Pod on Twitter. If you two want to, you know, become Twitter friends. <laughs> Tweet. Maybe someday you'll be on the pod. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Really, really it has, is how it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost how every guest has worked. So. <laughs> Great. All right, guys, we, we shall return and yeah. we will talk more about Ghost Network. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>